Chapter 20 Converting Sinners is a Christian Duty Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he who converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. James 5, 19 and 20 A matter of present duty and of great practical importance is brought before us in this text. In order for us to clearly understand it, let us look into the true idea of a sinner. What constitutes a sinner? 1. A sinner is basically a moral agent. He must be this, no matter what else he may or may not be. He must have free will in the sense of being able to originate his own activities. He must be the responsible author of his own acts in such a sense that he is not forced irresistibly to act one way or another in any way other than according to his own free choice. He must also have intellect so that he can understand his own actions and his moral responsibilities. An insane person who lacks this aspect of his fundamental character is not a moral agent and cannot be a willing sinner. He must also have emotion so that he can be moved to action, so that there can be persuasion to voluntary activity, as well as the capability to act upon the impulses for right or wrong action. These are the essential elements of mind, necessary to constitute a moral agent, yet these are not all the facts that develop themselves in a sinner. 2. He is a selfish moral agent, devoted to his own interests, making himself his own supreme end of action. He looks on his own things, not on the things of others. Philippians 2.4. His own interests are his main concern rather than the interests of others. We see then that every sinner is a moral agent who is acting under the law of selfishness, having free will and all the powers of a moral agent, but making self the great end of all his action. This is a sinner. 3. We have here the true idea of sin. In an important sense, it is an error. A sinner is one who errs, he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way. It is not a mere mistake, for mistakes are made through ignorance or incompetence nor is it a mere defect of character that is blamed on its author. Rather, it is an error in his ways. It is missing the mark in his voluntary course of conduct. It is a willing separation from the line of duty. It is not an innocent mistake, but it is a reckless yielding to desire. 
It involves a wrong purpose, a bad intention, or being influenced by desire or passion in opposition to reason and conscience. It is an attempt to secure some present gratification at the expense of resisting convictions of duty. This is most emphatically missing the mark. What is conversion? What does it mean to convert the sinner from the error of his way? This error lies in his having a wrong ambition of life, his own present worldly interests. Therefore, to convert him from the error of his ways is to turn him from this course to a tender-hearted consecration of himself to God and to the well-being of others. This is precisely what is meant by conversion. It is changing the great moral reason of action. It removes selfishness and substitutes compassion in its place. In what sense does a person convert a sinner? Our text says, If any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, implying that a person may convert a sinner. But in what sense can this be said and done? I answer that the change must of necessity be a voluntary one. It is not a change in the essence of the soul or in the essence of the body. It is not any change in the created inherent abilities, but it is a change that the mind itself, acting under various influences, makes as to its own voluntary purpose of action. It is an intelligent change. The mind, acting intelligently and freely, changes its moral course, and does so for understood reasons. The Bible attributes conversion to various means. 1. To God. God is spoken of as converting sinners, and Christians rightly pray to God to do so. 2. Christians are spoken of as converting sinners. We see this in our text. 3. The truth is also said to convert sinners. Again, let it be considered that no one can convert another without the cooperation and consent of that other person. His conversion consists in his surrendering his will and changing his voluntary course. He can never do this against his own free will. He may be persuaded and induced to change his voluntary outward actions, but to be persuaded is simply to be led to change one's chosen course and choose another. Even God cannot convert a sinner without his own consent. He cannot, for the simple reason that the thing involves a contradiction. Being converted implies one's own consent, or else it is not conversion at all. Therefore, God converts people only as He persuades them to turn from the error of their selfish ways to the rightness of compassionate ways.
So also, a person can convert a sinner only in the sense of presenting the reasons that bring about the voluntary change, thus persuading him to repent. If he can do this, then he converts a sinner from the error of his ways. However, the Bible informs us that man alone never does or can convert a sinner. It stands to reason, however, that when man acts, humbly depending on God, God works with him and by him. People are laborers together with God. 1 Corinthians 3.9 They present reasons, and God enforces those reasons on the mind and heart. When the minister preaches, or when you speak with sinners, man presents truth, and God causes the mind to see it with great clearness and to feel its personal application with great power. Man persuades, and God persuades. Man speaks to his ear, and God speaks to his heart. Man presents truth through the means of his senses to reach his free mind. God presses it upon his mind so as to secure his voluntary yielding to its claims. It is for this reason that the Bible speaks of sinners as being persuaded. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Acts 26, 28. The language of the Bible is entirely natural in this. It is just as if you would say that you had turned someone from his purpose, or that your arguments had turned him, or that his own convictions of truth had turned him. In the same way, the language of the Bible on this subject is altogether simple and plain, speaking right out in perfect harmony with the laws of the mind. We must next inquire into the kind of death of which the text speaks. Shall save a soul from death. Notice that it is a soul, not a body, that is to be saved from death. Therefore, we may dismiss all thought of the death of the body in this connection. However truly converted, his body must nevertheless die. The passage speaks of the death of the soul. By the death of the soul is sometimes meant spiritual death, a state in which the mind is not influenced by truth as it should be. The person is under the dominion of sin and repels the influence of truth. The death of the soul may also be eternal death, the complete loss of the soul and its final destruction. The sinner is, of course, spiritually dead, and if this condition were to continue through eternity, this would become eternal death. Yet the Bible represents the sinner dying unpardoned as going away into everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 46, and as being punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. 
To be always a sinner is terrible enough. It is a death of fearful horror. But how terribly increased is even this when you conceive of it as intensified by everlasting punishment, far away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. We now consider the importance of saving a soul from death. Our text says that he who converts a sinner saves a soul from death. Consequently, he saves him from all the misery he otherwise would have had to endure. So much misery is saved. This amount is greater in the case of each sinner saved than all that has been experienced in our entire world up to this hour. This may startle you at first and may seem incredible. Yet you have only to consider the matter attentively and you will see that it must be true. That which has no end, that which increases entirely beyond all our ability to compute, must surpass any finite amount, no matter how great. Yet the amount of actual misery experienced in this world has been very great. As you go about the great cities in any country, you cannot fail to see it. Suppose you could ascend to some great height and stretch your vision over a whole continent just to take in at one glance all its miseries. Suppose you had an eye to see all forms of human woe and measure their magnitude, all the woes of slavery, oppression, intemperance, war, lust, disease, anguished hearts, and so forth. Suppose you could stand above some battlefield and hear as in one ascending volume all its groans and curses and take the gauge and dimensions of its unutterable woes. Suppose you could hear the echo of its agonies as they roll up to the very heavens. If you were able to do so, you must say that there is indeed an ocean of agony here. Yet all this is only a drop in the bucket compared with that vast amount, defying all calculation, that each lost sinner must endure, and from which each converted sinner is saved. If you were to see a train rumble over a dozen people at once, grinding their flesh and bones, you could not bear the sight. Perhaps you would even faint. Oh, but if you could see all the agonies of the earth accumulated and could hear the terrible groans ascending in one deafening roar that would shake the very earth, how must your nerves quiver? Yet all this would be merely nothing compared with the eternal sufferings of one lost soul. And this is true. No matter how low may be the degree of this lost soul's suffering, each moment of his existence. Even more, the amount of suffering thus saved is greater not only than all that ever has been, 
but it is greater than all that ever will be endured in this world. This is true even though the number of inhabitants would increase a million-fold, and their miseries be increased in a similar proportion. No matter how low the degree of suffering the sinner would endure, yet our supposition is that if the earth's population increased a million-fold, and its increase of miseries increased in a similar proportion, it could not begin to measure the agonies of the lost spirit. We can also extend our comparison and take in all that has already been endured in the universe. All the agonies of earth and all the agonies of hell combined up to this hour. Yet even so, our total is utterly too meager to measure the amount of suffering saved when one sinner is converted. Even more, the amount thus saved is greater than the created universe ever can endure in any finite duration. It is even greater, countless times greater, than all finite minds can ever conceive. You may embrace the entire understanding of all finite minds, of every person and every angel, of all minds except that of God, and still the person who saves one soul from death saves in that single act more misery from being endured than all this immeasurable amount. He saves more misery by countless times than the entire universe of created minds can conceive. I am afraid that many of you have never troubled yourselves to consider this subject. You are not to escape from this fearful conclusion by saying that suffering is only a natural consequence of sin and that there is no governmental infliction of pain. It does not matter at all whether the suffering is governmental or natural. The amount is all I speak of now. If a person continues in his sins, he will be miserable forever by natural law, and therefore the person who converts a sinner from his sins saves all this immeasurable amount of suffering. You may remember the illustration used by an old preacher who attempted to give an approximate understanding of this idea, a greater appreciation by means of the understanding. There are two methods of studying and of trying to comprehend the infinite. One is by the reason, which simply affirms the infinite, and the other is by the understanding, which only approximates toward it by ideas and estimates of the finite. Both these modes of understanding may be developed by culture. If someone stands on the deck of a ship and casts his eye abroad upon the shoreless expanse of waters, he may get some idea of the vast. Even better, if he goes out and looks at the stars in the dimmed light of evening, he can get some idea of their number and of the vastness of that space in which they are scattered abroad. On the other hand, his reason tells him at once that this space is unlimited. 
His understanding only helps him to approximate toward this great idea. Let him suppose, as he gazes upon the countless stars, that he has the power of rising into space at his will, and that he ascends at the speed of light for thousands of years. Approaching those glorious orbs one after another, he takes in more and more clear and grand conceptions of their magnitude as he soars on past the moon, the sun, and other suns of surpassing splendor and glory. It is the same with the conceptions of the understanding in reference to the great idea of eternity. The old writer to whom I alluded thinks of it as a bird that is removing a globe of earth by taking away a single grain of sand once in a thousand years. What an eternity, almost, it would take! And yet this would not measure eternity. Suppose, sinner, that you are the one suffering during all this period, and that you are destined to suffer until this supposed bird has removed the last grain of sand away. Suppose you are to suffer nothing more than you have sometimes felt, yet suppose that bird must remove in this slow process not this world only, for this is but a little speck comparatively, but also the whole material universe just a single grain at a time. Or suppose the universe were a million times more extensive than it is, and that you must suffer through all this time while the bird removes slowly a single tiny grain once every thousand years. Would it not seem to you like an eternity? If you knew that you must be deprived of all this happiness for all time, would not the knowledge sink into your soul with a force that is perfectly crushing? However, this concept only gives a basic understanding. Let this time measured in this way roll on until all is removed that God ever created or ever can create, and even so, it hardly provides a comparison, for eternity has no end. You cannot even begin to come near its end. After the lapse of the longest period you can conceive, you have approached no nearer than you were when you first began. Sinner, can your heart endure or your hands be strong in the day when God will deal in this way with you? Ezekiel 22.14 Let us look at still another view of the situation. He who converts a sinner not only saves more misery, but bestows more happiness than all the world or even all the created universe, has yet enjoyed. You have a converted sinner, have you? <laughs> Indeed. Then think what has been gained. What happens then? 
let the facts of the case give the answer. The time will come when he will say, In my experience of God and divine things, I have enjoyed more than all the created universe had done up to the general judgment, more than the total happiness of all creatures during the whole duration of our world. And yet my happiness is only just begun. Onward, still onward, onward forever rolls the deep tide of my blessedness, and it is ever more increasing. Also, look at the work in which this converted person is occupied. Just look at it. In some sunny hour, you have caught glimpses of God and of His love and have said, Oh, if this could only last forever! Oh, if this stormy world were not around me! Oh, if my soul had wings like a dove! then I would fly away and be at rest. Those were the only longings for the rest of heaven. That which the converted person enjoys above is heaven. You must add to this the rich and glorious idea of eternal and perpetual increase. His blessedness not only endures forever, but it increases forever. This is the joy of every converted sinner. If these things are true, then the following things are also true. 1. Converting sinners is the work of the Christian life. It is the great work to which we, as Christians, are especially appointed. Who can doubt this? 2. It is the great work of life because its importance demands that it should be. It is so much beyond any other work in importance that it cannot be rationally regarded as anything other or less than the great work of life. 3. It can be made the great work of life because Jesus Christ has made provision for it. His atonement covers the human race and lays the foundation so broad that whosoever will may come. Revelation 22.17 The promise of His Spirit to aid each Christian in this work is equally broad and it was designed to open the way for each one to become a laborer together with God in this work of saving souls. 4. Compassion can never stop short of it. Where so much good can be done and so much misery can be prevented, how is it possible that compassion can fail to do its utmost? 5. Living to save others is the condition of saving ourselves. No one is truly converted who does not live to save others. Every truly converted person turns from selfishness to compassion 
and compassion certainly leads him to do all he can to save the souls of his fellow men. This is the changeless law of benevolent action. 6. The self-deceived are always to be differentiated by this characteristic. They live to save themselves. This is the main purpose of all their religion. All their religious efforts and activities lean toward this sole purpose. If they can secure their own conversion so as to be pretty sure of it, they are satisfied. Sometimes the ties of natural compassion embrace those who are especially near to them. But selfishness commonly goes no further except that a desire for a good reputation may urge them on. 7. Some people make no effort to convert sinners, but act as if this were a matter of no importance whatsoever. They do not labor to persuade people to be reconciled to God. Some seem to be waiting for miraculous intervention. They take no efforts even with their children or friends. Very much as if they felt no interest in the great issue, they wait and wait for God or a miracle to move. Sadly, they do nothing in this great work of human life. Many professed Christians have no faith in God's blessing and no expectation by that of success. Consequently, they make no effort in faith. Their own experience is good for nothing to help them, because never having had faith, they have never had success. Many ministers preach so as to do no good. Having failed so long, they have lost all faith. They have not gone to work expecting success and therefore they have not had success. Many professors of Christianity who are not ministers also seem to have lost all faith. Ask them if they are doing anything, and they answer that they are truly doing nothing. However, if their hearts were full of the love of souls or of love of Christ, they would certainly make much effort they would at least try to convert sinners from the error of their ways. They would live Christianity. They would hold up its light as a natural, instinctive thing. Every Christian, male or female, of every age, and in any position in life whatsoever, should make it a business to save souls. There are indeed many other things to be done, and they should have their place. But don't neglect the greatest thing of all. Many professed Christians never seem to convert sinners. Let me ask you how it is with you. Some of you might reply, Under God, I have been the means of saving some souls. But some of you cannot even say this. You know you have never labored honestly and with all your heart for this purpose. 
and you do not know that you have ever been the means of converting one sinner. What will I say of those young converts here? Have you given yourselves up to this work? Are you laboring for God? Have you gone to your unrepentant friends, even to their homes, and by personal warm-hearted appeal pleaded with them to be reconciled to God? By writing and speaking and by every form of influence you can command, have you tried to save souls and do what you can in this work? Have you succeeded? Suppose all who professed Christianity were to do this, each in their sphere, and each doing all they individually could do. How many would be left unconverted? Suppose each one would say, I lay myself on the altar of my God for this work. I confess all my past neglect. From now on, God helping me, this will be the labor of my life. Imagine if each person would begin by removing all the old offenses and occasions of stumbling and would publicly confess and lament his negligence and every other form of public offense, confessing how little you have done for souls, crying out, Oh, how wickedly I have lived in this matter! but I must reform, confess, repent, and completely change the course of my life. If you were all to do this, and then set yourselves each in your place to lay your hand in all earnestness upon your neighbor and pluck him out of the fire, how glorious would be the result! However, to neglect the souls of others, and think you will still be saved yourself, is one of sin's most worst mistakes. For unless you live to save others, how can you hope to be saved yourself? If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8.9